You. 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 Do you know that bad girls go to hell? What do nudists on the moon, a penis transplant that has a mind of its own, 1960s burlesque queen blaze star, and a double agent with a 73-inch bust have in common? The 27 films of director Doris Wishman. Today, we explore the twisted world of Doris Wishman, mother of exploitation. This is Slums of Film History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is not normally discussed in polite company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. In each episode, each one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and then schools the other. We discuss everything from bodily fluids to TNA to exploding heads. If there's a film subject that's too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Hi, Tom. Hi, Slate. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Today's a little different because instead of talking about a topic, we're talking about one specific director. And it's going to be interesting because I think, have you ever seen a Doris Wishman film? No. Yeah, I don't... I don't think I have. I had one of her films starring Chesty Morgan, which we'll talk about. Okay. Um, I don't know if I ever watched it all the way through. I had it as a video cassette back in the day that I got from Something Weird Video. Okay. So this was really exciting for me to kind of uh, go down because I met Doris Wishman. I remember. It was in 1998. She had gone to the, the New York Film Festival, which we both went to. It was the New York Underground Film Festival. The New York Underground Film Festival, that's yeah. right, that we went to when I was 18 and you were older than that. Slightly, yes. And she, there had been some kind of renewed interest in her films, and they had brought her there to screen Bad Girls Go to Hell. She was trying to get money for her newest film, Dildo Heaven, which... I forgot about that. Uh, I mean, I don't know if it exists. It seems like people have seen it, but the trailer just looks... It looks terrible. Right. Well, but I still have my, my signed program by you do. her. Yeah. I didn't know much about her at the time, so this was a great exercise for me. You want to get into it? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm excited. All right. I think that the 1960s were the best time for independent filmmakers in the history of film. Not because the independent filmmakers are particularly good because sure. most of them were terrible. But this was a time where you could really do whatever you want. And if you could raise the money to make your film and get it distributed, you could be showing in a theater in Times Square or at a at a drive-in across America. Well, and just to add something to that, I think it was also the time when all the restrictions from Hayes Code and everything else, which we'll talk about, uh, or which was talked about mm -hmm. in NC-17, were crashing down. So more of these films were getting out and people were interested in seeing this kind of independent, you know, that weren't restricted by the Hollywood system type of movies. Well, it was two things. It was the Hollywood code had started to kind of fall apart, right. but also people had stopped going to the movies because of TV. Films at the time were very purient. 
Right. And so, and TV was even more purient. So, yeah. in order to get people, in order to get butts in seats in the theaters, you had to have some type of gimmick in order to get people there. That could be sex or violence or rough trade. But, but the gimmick was really important. And and Doris Wishman knew that. Yeah. She she had a gimmick for every single one of her films. She was the only female director making exploitation movies at the time. It was very rare to have that. I mean, to be honest, it's rare now to yeah, have that's a true. to have a female film director. As for bad exploitation movies, she ranks up there pretty high with even the best of her male counterparts, I think. She's often called the female Edward. I find that completely offensive. Really? Because because she had a style that was her own and she would she you, knew she was making bad movies. Right. Would you call her the female Herschel Gordon Lewis? Yeah, pr- that's probably a better that's probably a better comparison. Okay. So just a little bit of background. She was born in 1912 and was raised by her father in New York City. Her mother died when she was young. I think that always gave her kind of a a very male outlook on the world because she didn't have a female influence in her life. Right. After high school, she went to go work for her cousin, who was producer Max Rosenberg. He was an independent film distributor. Uh And in the late 1940s and 50s, he produced low-budget schlock movies like City of the Dead and Girl of the Night. (laughs) Nice. And this is where she learned about the film industry. Right. She was married to an advertising executive named Jack Abrams, but he died in 1958. And to take her mind off of his death, she wanted to work doing something that would completely encompass her entire life. So she decided to start making films. Nice. Her first film was a nudist film, and it was called Hide Out in the Sun, and that was in 1960. I read an interview with her online where she talked about the numerous disasters that came within Hideout of the Sun. She borrowed $10,000 from her sister Pearl, which is usually where she got her money to make her movies from her sister Pearl. She recorded a whole bunch of stuff. I think the film didn't come out or it was overexposed. She, She flubbed the first one and had to borrow more money to make it a second time. Hideout in the Sun was the one of the first nudist films that actually had a decent plot. Most nudist films up to now, like Garden of Eden and Nature's Paradise, had plots that were centered around the act and acceptance of nudism. So it would be something like a man and a woman would meet and the man would say, well, I am a nudist. And she would say, well, I don't like that. And he would say, well, let me explain nudism to you. And then they would go through all of this. And then at the end, she would accept nudism and, and would agree that it was the natural way of living. Aww. And they would walk off together in That's the adorable. nudist sun. Yeah. And most films were were just about nudism. Right. But Hideout in the Sun, Doris Wishman's first film, actually had a kind of like mobster crime type of plot. Go on. Uh, Yes. (laughs) You've got my attention. Yeah. So it centers around the brothers Steve and Duke and they rob a bank and take a hostage Dorothy. They steal away to the Hibiscus Country Club where Dorothy is a member and surprise it's a nudist colony. In nudist films, usually this is where there's just a lot of footage of people playing volleyball, people <laughs> yes. sunbathing. Sunbathing is a huge thing in, in nudist movies. That's right. that's usually what they're doing. I feel like they frolic a lot, too. They do a lot there's, of frolicking. There is frolicking. I mean, 
the whole shtick of nudist films were look at those people that are naked doing right. normal things. But because of the Supreme Court decision that's decided that nudity was not obscene, you couldn't really have any implied sex or sexuality. It could just be nude people doing normal things. Weren't a lot of these movies advertisements for the nudist lifestyle? Like they always had a naturism undercurrent to them until we get to where you're talking about? Because the Supreme Court decision decided that they had to be educational films. Right. The education was that nudity was natural and it almost had to have a documentary style feeling in order for it to be considered to be not obscene. Okay. And I'll talk about it a little bit later in Doris's second one, which, uh, which was banned. So after they steal away to the Hibiscus Country Club um, and they realize that it's a nudist colony, the first brother, Duke, decides that nudism (laughs) is not kosher and he leaves with all the money. Then he tries to escape the police and gets bitten by a snake and dies. Nice. That's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see that. Steve leaves as well, but true to form, Dorothy has convinced him that that her nudist lifestyle is natural and superior. So he returns to tell her to wait for him, and he surrenders to the police. In a dream sequence, they go off in the sunset wearing minimal clothing. So he does have to pay for his crime at the end. Sure. But And and this would be a reoccurring theme for Doris Wishman. There is this dreamy-type dream sequence at the end that kind of is like, don't worry. They'll be together. After he pays for his crime, they'll be back together and you can walk around with your titties hanging out. I'm going to make it this. I just totally made this up. But that is where um, Terry Gilliam got the ending for Brazil where they have the dream sequence where they it ends badly, but they go off and fly away. I, I just made that up, but I'm going to say that it was no, influenced that's by. That's definitely where it came out. He okay, watched Hideout in the Sun. Okay. Yeah. I, I knew it. <laughs> um, I actually thought that Hideout in the Sun is not as terrible as most other nudist films. Okay. And I think one of the reasons why is what she brought to the table, being a female director, but also bringing something, bringing something new to the genre. Sure. So her scenes of of nudism are a lot of underwater scenes, a lot of um, they have this dreamlike quality to them that is a little less documentary than I think a lot of the other male directors had in their nudist films. Okay. She also once you get into the Hibiscus Club. It's got these wild, exotic animals, and every everyone is very different. And when they she shows scenes in like kind of like modern day 1960 Miami, it seems much more gritty on the outside. When you get into the Hibiscus Club, it's it's got a dreamlike quality. One of the most interesting things in all nudist films, but a certain certainly in uh, in Hideout in the Sun, is how they cover genitalia. At that time. A nudist film could not show actual genitals. So you right. could show TNA, show boobs and butts, but no penis, no vagina. So in all of the movies, even though they're nudist films, most of the men usually wear a, a bathing suit. Okay. If they don't, then they are carrying like a beach ball in front of their genitals. And it's not even subtle at all. Like right. it's they'll show two people walking by and both of them are holding with both hands a beach ball in front of their penis and vagina. The women usually are completely nude, but have things covering their vaginas, and it's a lot of times sewing. 
um, or of knitting, as it should crocheting, be. women, right. of course, are right. out in the sun and they're knitting because that's what you do when <laughs> you're yeah, sunbathing. Yeah. Of course. Uh-huh. Sunbathing and knitting go very well together. Yeah, yeah. while nude. Uh-huh. Sometimes they're carrying bouquets of flowers in front of their vaginas because they're women, I guess. So do they do any of those Austin Power type gags where they hold like a glass and somebody's standing behind it so their genitals are covered? No, you know what I mean? It is too bad because no. I think that would really add to that. Yeah, genre. I agree. I agree, but no, this is very much like there is a law and we are abiding by that law. Do not arrest us. Okay. Okay. There is also a scene where there's nude cooking. (laughs) This was great because it allowed for women to cook in the nude, but to wear an apron that would cover their vagina, but not their butt. So you could show a naked woman. It actually looked natural that you would, you know, not want to splatter food into your vagina. Interesting enough, and I just wanted to add this I think with all these nude dating shows, I feel like nude cooking is the next step in that. I think (laughs) nude cooking needs to be a thing. Anyway, sorry. Noted. Hideout in the Sun was moderately successful, but it did allow Doris to take on a more ambitious project, and that was her second film called Nude on the Moon. I've heard of Nude on the Moon. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds stupid um, because it was stupid. Right. It was also kind of brilliant. Science fiction films were already pretty schlocky by the early 60s. Um, Jerry Lee Lewis had played a goofy space alien in Visit to a Small Planet the year before. Oh, wow. So it wasn't like she was going to be the first one to make a low-budget, shitty science fiction movie. That was already... Right. Well maintained. Sure. See, man's secret dreams come true in Nude on the Moon. Nude on the Moon is about two rocket scientists that get $3 million in funding suddenly and travel in a spaceship that you never see because too high of a budget. Gotcha. And they travel to the moon. Okay. When they get there, they realize that the moon has been colonized and that everyone there is nude. Almost. They sure. wear space underpants. Um, they also have pipe cleaner antennae. Okay. Because they're aliens. Of course. That makes perfect sense. The rocket scientists can only stay for a little while, just enough time for one of them to fall in love with the hot moon leader president. Makes sense. And then they have to return to to home, to, to Earth. And he then realizes that his secretary, who he's never paid any attention to before, is the same actress that's played by moon president. Oh. And they kind of, they fall in love. Okay. It, it was a little bit of a twist ending that Doris Wishman kind of always had, as you remember from Hideout in the Sun. It was of kind of like the dream sequence. And yeah. this was like, well, wait a minute. That's the moon president. Why is the moon president your secretary oh. kind of thing? You yeah. know, it, it was, it, she had these vague, you know, kind of endings. But sure. it, it did make you want to sit around until the last three minutes of the movie. Okay. Nude on the Moon was not without its complications. Sure. It was actually banned in New York. And the reason being was that there are no known nudist colonies on the moon, which means that the movie cannot be educational in any way. She made that up, and therefore the movie was banned in New York. Isn't that hilarious? Yeah, and I'm calling bullshit, too, because we hadn't been to the moon at that they time. They didn't know. So they didn't know. They didn't How know. did they know? It was eight years before we'd land exactly. on the moon. Yeah, so yeah. that's just crap. It's bullshit. Agreed. Nude on the Moon is terrible and and extremely stupid, but because it actually had a gimmick, whereas nudist films didn't have that, it always lands on the list of most notable nudist films from the okay. '60s. So, and and I'd heard of it too. I mean, it's that's it's yeah. kind of its saving 
grace sure. was that it was so stupid that it had it was memorable yeah because it was so go. bad on that note that one and the one before were they shown what kind of theaters were they shown in now were they just grindhouse did they make it to main theaters at all no the nudist films never made it to uh to mainstream theaters to mainstream theaters okay yeah doris's third film of note in the nudism genre only had one gimmick and that was blaze star Do you know Blaze Star? No. So one of the reasons why I know something about Blaze Star is because there was a movie called Blaze that came out in 1988. I remember the movie. I remember that. Yeah, I was obsessed with it as a nine-year-old child. I don't know why. I watched it recently, and it was not. It's not a good movie. Sure. But Blaze Star was a burlesque dancer in the 60s. Okay. And she had had an affair with a politician and they made this movie. It was Paul Newman and Lolita Davidovich. I was somehow obsessed with it. I never saw it. I wasn't allowed to see it as a child. Right. But I had always known about Playstar and I didn't know that that Doris Wishman made a movie about her. So, Blaze Star was born in rural West Virginia in 1932. She moved to D.C. when she was 15 and was discovered. A manager found her and was like, you've got boobs, you should be a burlesque dancer. Clearly. Burlesque at the time was not like stripping. It sure. was dancing, it was removing clothes, but you never went fully nude. But they had like bustiers yeah, and shit. Yeah, bustiers like that. and stuff. Yeah. Um, this was something that there was also always a lot of gimmick to as well. Blaze's most popular two dances were one where a man whips the clothes off of her. And two, she performs on a sofa, kind of writhing around. And at some point, the sofa catches on fire. It was fake. Obviously, smoke comes out of it. But also, have you seen those lights that have air that blows up and like yellow and red ribbons ribbons? that simulate fire? They did that. That was kind of like the first time that they had done it. Oh, nice. And, you know, if you've ever seen the the movie or the play Gypsy, you know, there's a song called Gotta Get a Gimmick. Right. And and that was was kind of her thing. She was dancing in Baltimore at the time and kind of going on tours, and Doris Wishman decided to put her in a movie. Unfortunately, the movie is terrible. Really? The most interesting thing about Blaze were her gimmicks, were her, you know, her dances, her sexy dances, but they weren't allowed to put those in movies because she could only be in a nudist film. So the plot is Blaze star tires of her public performances and she decides to join a nudist camp and then spends the whole movie just walking around nude, topless, yeah. while people play chess and practice archery. And knitting. And, and they're knitting. Any excitement over Blaze Star is not shown. Gotcha. Um, huh. She does have a really impressive rack, though. Really, really impressive. It's oh. it's big. Yeah. Her figure. Measurements. Yeah. Her measurements were 38, 24, 37. Goodness. And she has fiery red hair. She oh, was well. A, she was a beautiful lady. Blaze only made one movie with Doris Wishman. And then she retired from dancing once show business started getting towards stripping. Yeah. She decided that she didn't want to be a part of that anymore. Okay. And then she sold jewelry at a mall in Maryland until her death a little bit earlier this year. Doris would release five more nudist films in the next few years, although most of them were unremarkable. Sure. Those were Gentlemen Prefer Nature Girls. (laughs) 
<laughs> Playgirls International. Nice. Behind the Nudist Curtain. Ooh. The Prince and the Nature Girl. But by 1965, nudist films were, were pretty much done. And yeah. she moved on to the newest craze, which was the Ruffy. Okay. Did you talk do you talk about Ruffies at all? I mentioned them only as sexploitation nudity type of stuff. I don't know that much about the Ruffies, but Lorna was Russ Meyer's first. Ruffy, Ruffy film, yes. and that is considered to be the first of the of the Ruffy films. And Ruffy's generally were movies that combined a BDSM kind of culture along with sex and sexuality. So it was a lot of smacking and a lot of treating women poorly, either by right. men or by other women. And at the time, it was very different because it was violence. I guess it turned men on seeing women smacked around? I guess. I mean, I don't know. It, I think people are looking for more. Mm-hmm. You know, again, they're looking for something with a little more edge to it. And an audience gravitated toward that. So they roughed up women, added more violence and more fucked up shit to their movies. And I guess it got, got an audience. I mean, it makes sense because if you look at things through, you know, nudism, through the nudie cutie, through roughies, now all the way up to torture porn, it's always just like a little bit more. Sure. Just adding on a little teeny right. bit more. Anyway, Doris Wishman did her first and what is arguably her best film, although that's not saying much, is Bad Girls Go to Hell. Mm-hmm. And that is in 1965. See the boldest and most intimate scenes ever shown on any screen. In Bad Girls Go to Hell. See sex without shame. See violence in a story that is brutally honest. In Bad Girls Go to Hell. These are the men possessed with sex, corrupt and immoral, who prey upon women. They are the thrill seekers. This is a picture with a new kind of raw, naked realism. If you want to see a film, that dares to tell all, that is truly a body and soul shocker, then you must see Bad Girls Go to Hell. So the plot, and I use the term plot lightly, is a woman named Meg is a desperate housewife. She lives in Boston. Her husband doesn't pay enough attention to her. And he goes to work. She's going downstairs to take out the garbage. And the landlord or the super tries to rape her. She gets away, smacks her around a little bit. She gets away. Then it's unclear as to why she did this. But she goes into her house. He pushes a note under under the door that says, if you don't come to my apartment, I'm going to tell your husband what, what you did, which was not get raped by me, but right. whatever. Yeah. Huh. And she's freaking out. So she sure. goes to his room. He tries to rape her. She hits him over the head with an ashtray and kills him. And then she's like, I got to go on the lam. She gets on a bus. She goes to New York, of course, where yeah. where everyone ends up when they've done something horrible. And then starts trying to find a room in, you know, in houses, like trying to find a place to live while she hides from the police. And everywhere she finds a room, someone ends up beating her up in some way. So she finds a man. She's cooking and cleaning for him. Then he, like, starts to smack her around and beat her or whatever. She leaves. There, she finds another room with a with a woman. She ends up sleeping with the woman. Oh wow! She 
thinks that she's going to be found out. So she goes somewhere else to a married couple in the middle of the night. The husband comes and like beats her up in the middle of the <laughs> night. It's only just to be smacking women around. That's fucked up. It's kind of fucked up. It's <laughs> terrible. At the end of the movie, she ends up at a home of an elderly woman. And it seems like everything's going to be okay. But the elderly woman's son comes to the house to visit and, and <laughs> realizes. Right. He doesn't actually Spoil- beat her up. Spoiler. <laughs> beat her up. He finds out who she is. Okay. And then she wakes up. It was all just a dream. Oh. But when she wakes up, her husband is like, I'm going to work. She goes to take out the garbage. And then the super comes and starts to rape her. Like in the beginning of the movie. And then the end is supered over her screaming face. So it's that weird kind of twist Doris Wishman ending that doesn't really make sense. Circular narrative kind of thing. Yeah. It's great. Kind of makes sense. Anyway, Bad Girls Go to Hell only has a Rotten Tomato score of 20%. um, But I don't think it gets enough credit. Right. I don't understand the roughy genre because it it does nothing for me, obviously. Doris Wishman's roughies were different than male-directed roughies. Right. She, this was done in black and white, so it gave it kind of a cinema verite style. And she famously said in an interview, a magazine at the time compared it to Alfred Hitchcock. That's my claim to fame. No one ever... Did that? I'm right. sure. yeah, yeah. No. She. It's such an interesting style of filmmaking, though, because while it's terrible, she typically dubs all of her sound back over. She does these cutaways, so you're seeing two people talking, and she films the person that's talking from the back. I guess it made it easier for her to cut. She's a really interesting style, and Bad Girls Go to Hell is her most stylistically interesting film. Huh. Again, it's it's complicated because it you would think as a female director, she would have some type of powerful female role model. But in this movie, the woman just gets beat up by everybody. She is the victim all the time. It also portrays men as being terrible too. Men are, you know, her husband doesn't have enough time for her. All of the other men are alcoholics or perverts or wife beaters. Right. So everyone kind of looks terrible in her movies, I guess. Yeah. I mean, and she, they are terrible. She wanted to make a buck, and she made movies that made a buck. Well, you mentioned the roughy genre, and I think it's interesting in that it's a middle point because weren't roughies still under the protection of the nudist films, basically? Unclear. Well, it definitely pro- progressed into the 70s, and especially in genres like black exploitation, which had a lot of violence towards women and women committing violence. The roughies directly fed into what we see in the 70s, which are very rough movies and, and more violence than, towards women, but more sexuality than we'd seen previously. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, a, it's an interesting bridge, but it is weird to think of how it just kind of, how that came about, really, or why or that... how you could make a whole movie about people like smacking a woman around <laughs> yeah, L- lightly it's that's, not... that's not a that's not an snm porn movie you know right. like it's, it's supposed to be mainstream ish as close to mainstream as she got i guess but yeah i don't get it either i don't know this was successful for her and she went on to make a few more roughies she did the sex perils of paulette in 1965 yeah another day another man in 1966, <laughs> My Brother's Wife, A Taste of Her Flesh. Hmm. Indecent Desires, which I watched, is 
dreadful. It's really interesting. It has, it's available online. I'll put it up on the website. But it's about a man who finds a doll that ends up being connected to a blonde bombshell in a sexy kind of voodoo way. So like he finds a doll in the trash. He sees a hot woman that looks kind of like the doll. And then he can like do things to the doll. And it happens to her in real life. So there's a scene where he burns the doll in the mouth with a cigarette. And she's like, ah! And then she's got a burn on her mouth. Interesting. Bizarre. Huh. She also did too much too often and Love Toy. (laughs) Love Toy. And then in 1970, she made a film called The Amazing Transplant. This is one of those movies that even diehard Doris Wishman fans have a really hard time with because it's extremely rapey. It's huh. also one of her films that was shown in full color, that she shot it in full color, and it's, it's garish and rapey and really odd. What's it about? It centers around a seemingly normal man that becomes transfixed by his fiancée's golden earrings. He tries to force her to have sex. He can't get it up, and then he strangles her. So that's kind of the opening scene in the movie. Okay. He then starts a rape and sometimes murder spree. Uh, he rapes these women, some of who end up liking it. It's not mm. one of her finer moments. And at the end, a doctor ends up explaining that he performed a penis transplant on the man and that the penis that he got transplanted was from a serial rapist <laughs> who was obsessed with women with gold earrings for some reason. I mean, that's not even explained. It would, I guess, lead you to believe that a man's brain is actually in his penis, considering that this penis had a mind of its own. He was a very normal person until somebody put a serial murderer's penis on him, and that turned him into a cra- sex-crazed rape murder monster. As as could happen. Mm-hmm. No, I think the science is solid on yeah. that one. <laughs> After The Amazing Transplant, Doris found her awful muse, Chesty Morgan. If you don't know Chesty Morgan, she was born Lillian Stello near Warsaw, Poland. She had a tragic life. Both of her parents died in the Holocaust. She made it to America by an arranged marriage, and then her husband was murdered at his butcher shop, leaving two small children and no husband, and being a Polish woman that barely spoke English. With nowhere else to turn, she started doing burlesque shows, always leaving her corset and bottoms on, but fully exposing that rack. And that rack was 73 inches of all-natural titty. You have to see it to believe it because these things are, I mean, enormous. Yeah. Hence the name Chesty Morgan. Yeah. Doris Wishman saw film potential in Chesty Morgan. How can you not? And she had her niece write two films uh, that are stars. Actually, three films. Chesty Morgan was apparently a nightmare to work with. Really? And Doris never made the third one. What made her a nightmare? I guess we'll go into it. Well, I, I don't actually, but I read an interview yesterday where she talked about it in a car ride along with this guy for, you know, some ni- early 90s, you know, film magazine. Yeah. The main thing that she did was she she was driving from Long Island one day with her boyfriend. They were supposed to be on the set at, I don't know, 9 a.m. And they didn't come onto the set until almost 4. Doris Wishman said it cost her $7,000 because she was, you know, five hours late and that she was bra shopping, that she passed by, I don't know, Woolworths or something, and they had a sale on bras and she decided she wanted to go. That cannot be true. No. That that, that would that like... means the only thing that Chesty Morgan did was boob-related things. Right. And that can't be true. But anyway. Like, there. 
she was on her way back from a mammogram to, and then went to a bra shop and ran in the doors. For, you know, she just did boob. Yeah. Right. And the then had to breast pump. You know, right. it was like that means that she oh, she is not a human being. She is just a walking boobs. boob. Right. Yeah. So the first film that Chesty Morgan was in is Deadly Weapons, which was the one that I owned okay. as, a, as a young boy. <laughs> it was about a woman who tracks down mobs, the mobsters that killed her boyfriend, Larry. Mm-hmm. One by one, she seduces each man, she drugs them, and then she smothers them to death with her boobs. Go on. At the end, she finds out that it was her own father who had ordered her lover's execution. Classic Doris Wishman wow, twist. Wow, big twist. The, it's going to be hard to describe this in a podcast in the way that she kills these men. She, you know, she seduces them. She puts a... Roofies them or whatever, sort of gives them drugs. It's hard to explain why she didn't just put poison in their drink and just give it to them because she puts something in them that makes them all loopy dozy dozy. and even in one of the scenes the man goes the first one he goes I've had too much I can't use my arms because (laughs) then she goes up to him she presses her boobs into his face and then you can't see this at home but he's flailing his arms like in the air not doing what you would normally do which is try to push her her away. Right. He's just flailing his arms kind of like dozily in the air mm-hmm. going it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Right. Well, just killing a man with your boobs doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. You would if you've already drugged him, you would just put the poison in the drink. It seems like yeah, you just put enough to kill him. Yeah. Uh, also, she um, when she killed him on the sofa, the sofa was covered in plastic, which I thought was funny. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? This is a film that is fast, furious, thrilling, above all, exciting. I actually think that Deadly Weapons is surprisingly watchable. Chesty does her best, even though it's ridiculously noticeable that her voice is dubbed over, considering she had a very, very heavy Polish accent. Uh, we also get to see Harry Reams, and he was fresh off the controversy of the now infamous Deep Throat. Oh, yeah. He, he plays a non-pornographic part, and he actually isn't half that bad. Okay. We'll talk about Harry Reams more uh, in further episodes. And Deadly Weapons is actually a a surprisingly commercial Doris Wishman. It's full of giant boobs. The nudity is pretty tame. It actually even got an R rating, which was uh, unusual for her. Yeah. Her movies were always tailored to men and therefore resulted in kind of a harsh treatment of women, especially in the roughie. But this one was a little bit different. Chesty Morgan was, you know, a a woman with a vengeance and the power was, I mean, within her boobs, sure, but she was in charge. Yes. For a revenge film, it's not that bad. Interesting. On that note, you said it got an R rating. Now, did her other movies get rated at all? Did she even bother? Or did they get the X rating, which was around then? I don't even think that they were a high enough standard to even care. You know? Right. I, th- I think that they were just like, here's a movie. Let's see if it'll make a buck at the Rialto. You right. know? I'm just surprised that they she even submitted one to get a rating at all. Yeah. Yeah. But that's interesting. Okay. Um, her second film with Chesty Morgan was called Double Agent 73. I've heard of that one, believe it or not. Do you get 
do you get the title? Yes, it's her 73 boob. inches of boob. boob. Right. And it's, James Bond theme yeah. movie. Yeah. It's, sort of. it's not the better one of the two. Deadly Weapons is kind of the classic. I use that term lightly. Um, but in this, Chesty hides a camera in her bosom and she collects, I don't know why I wrote bosom when I say <laughs> boobs and titties. <laughs> you described them as boobs I'm trying and to be highbrow. You're really trying one. to be polite now. Bosom. Right. In her, in her bosom. It's like my, your parents just showed up yeah. in the studio. And <laughs> oh, no, say, oh, no. I better say bosom now. Her. Mom's bosom. here. Right. Bosom. Okay. Um, <laughs> and she she hides a camera in her in her bosom, and she collects evidence by taking off her top. So she kind of has to show her boobs in order to do her job. That's actual tradecraft, by there. the way. <laughs> There's only one killing in this in which she rubs poison on her boobs, oh. and then she gets in bed with a man who thinks that she's his girlfriend and he kisses her boobs and dies of poison. No, why did she do that in the last fucking movie? Well, she could have just just gotten the right kind of poison and not beaten around the bush with it. You well, know? because no they intended. wrote the films and shot them at the same time, so they had to split gimmicks. God, mm-hmm. see, I see. Got it. Yeah. Chessie Morgan only made two movies in her life, both of them Doris Wishman. She was a nightmare to work with. Yeah. And uh, Chessie has retired. Uh, I think she's still alive, actually. Huh. She also lives in Florida. There was a long interview that I read that was probably it's probably 15 years old now, so she might be dead. But she like owned an apartment building, and she also did a lot of her own maintenance work and stuff like that. She Good just retired to be a kind of normal person. After Chessie Morgan, Doris made one more kind of rough trade movie called The Immoral Three in 1975, which was a partial sequel to Double Agent 73. Mm-hmm. And then she made two films which she never spoke about and also right out denied ever having made. Okay. The only proof we had that Doris Wishman made two hardcore pornographic films in the mid-70s is the word of her longtime cinematographer, C. Davis Smith. He claims she directed the plot points of the movie, which were very light, and then left the room when the hardcore scenes were shot. The directorial credit of both of the movies are by Kenyon Whittle, but hmm. the movies reek of her. I mean, she absolutely directed these two movies. There is no denying it. You, by this time, she had already established a style. Yeah. And these films are very much Doris Wishman. They're okay. both online. They are on porno sites, but we're, of course, going to include them on the website. Of course we are. I had to watch them on my phone because I use my work computer to do all of my yeah. research, and I don't watch porn on smart, my work computer. Smart move. The first of these two films, Satan Was a Lady, is the better of the two. It's such a great title. Yeah, it's great. And even features a pretty talented uh, deep throater named Annie Sprinkle. Oh, wow, yeah. She pops up pretty frequently when you talk about porn chic, which we'll talk about in a, in a future podcast. In a future podcast. Yep. She was no Linda Lovelace. Okay. But she does have a memorable titty fucking scene that was like, okay, you kind of, you proved yourself in in that scene. Clearly her bona fides were established in this movie. So the loose plot of Satan Was a Lady is that Victor is due to marry Claudia, but is also banging someone else. Claudia's sister Terry is also into premarital sex. A lot of sex scenes ensue. It practically covers 90% of the first two reels. It's just wall-to-wall sex. Wall-to-wall banging. Once Victor is about to announce his marriage to Claudia to the family, Terry gives him a glass of water, which kills him. (gasps) Gasp. Then something happens that I'm not going to say what. 
And the reason why is because it was completely ripped off of the movie Diabolique. Diabolique. Mm -hmm. And that is one of my favorite movies of all time. So I don't want to reveal what happened in that. I'll I'll just say she completely ripped it off 100%. And then you find out, because a doctor describes it, which is a common theme in Doris Wishman's movies, Claudia was supposed to inherit a lot of money. And we now realize that her step mother, not her real mother, and Terry plotted to scare her dead so that they could get it. But the plan is foiled, and Claudia's comatose face staring glazed over at the camera as the end supers over her face. Wow. Which is the same trick that she used in Bad Girls Go to Hell yeah. with the screaming Meg and the end super the over end. her face. So you know that this is a Doris right. Wishman film. Clearly Wishman-esque. She also allegedly directed the movie Come With Me, My Love in 1976. You can watch both of these movies online although come with me my love is under the name haunted pussy (laughs) which is hilarious that's great and that's another name of my female all-female band Uh haunted pussy Pussy. they'll be playing tonight and downtown a haunted pussy is actually a better name for it than come with me my love because that is kind i'm gonna call it come with me my love because that's what it was intended to be called um but it also stars Annie Sprinkle, okay. and it has an uncredited Robert Kerman, who you might remember was the anthropologist from Cannibal Holocaust, <sighs> and the guy that does Debbie and Debbie Does Dallas. It all ties together. Mm-hmm. Wow. So bear with me on the plot. I watched this, had to Google the plot, had to watch parts of it again because I really could not understand what was happening, even sure. though it's pretty simplistic. I think it makes sense now. Okay. In 1928, a man walks in on his wife, who's played by Ursula Austin, having sex with another man. He kills them both and then himself. Fifty years later, he haunts the same apartment building, having weird ghost sex with a woman who looks like his dead wife, who's also played by Ursula Austin. Okay. You know he's a ghost because he always appears as a two-tone flat apparition over hideous floral wallpaper. The woman, Ursula Austin, of course thinks she's going crazy since a ghost is doing her and she doesn't know and has all sorts of sex hallucinations and dreams. So she'll be like sitting there and then all of a sudden you see the ghost show up that only you, the viewer, can see. And then she starts she starts she's ghost raped she's ghost raped kind there's of there's a movie There, there's actually a movie called I, th- I think it's called The Entity or some other movie mm-hmm. that had was Pierce Brosnan in it I have to look at this but I think there's a modern movie in a legit A-list film horror movie that's that exact same plot of ghost rape in Hollow Man no Invisible Man well, Invisible Man but Hollow Man was like the Paul Verhoeven remake for had Kevin Bacon and I think he rapes or he did somebody. he raped a woman yeah. and then it was and it was like at the end of it it was like that's fine like there was no he didn't yeah it's like hey, that was odd and yeah. the end and it's it was okay it was yeah. that's acceptable yeah. they all lived happily ever after I guess yeah. yep. so meanwhile the ghost also keeps killing people okay and he kills Annie Sprinkle's date the date is in the bathtub and the ghost pushes a radio into the bathtub which electrocutes him Mm -hmm. but the radio doesn't have a cord so it's not plugged into the wall Hmm. can you kill somebody by pushing a battery powered radio in the bathtub you know I'm gonna say you might get a little jolt maybe I don't know I feel like this is something for Mythbusters but um, I'm gonna say no then this movie is not scientifically accurate no 
Anyway, a lot more hairy genitalia sex happens and mm. even a lesbian scene Yum. until Ghosty stabs one of them in the cleavage. Ursula now understands that this is the ghost doing and he convinces her to take some pills which presumably kill her and takes her into the ghost world forever. The credits roll over the wallpaper <laughs> because oh, wow. the wallpaper... Was is, the wallpaper screaming with the, when it went over? The wallpaper is like a character in this movie. That's what I mean. It's really bizarre. Huh. So those were her two pornographic films. And then her most infamous film was finally released in 1978. Okay. And that movie was called Let Me Die a Woman. That I have heard of. It is a classic. Last year, I was a man. How does it feel to have the body of a man and the sexual drive and desires of a woman? Or to be trapped in a woman's body and have the overwhelming sensual needs of a man. I always felt like a woman, even when I had a penis. Yeah, I've heard, yeah, I've heard of this one. You're going to see kind of the way my brain works while I talk through this, because <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what happened here to make this movie. Okay. It's part documentary, part hardcore, part medical footage, and part expose. And therefore, it's kind of a pasted together exploitation film about transsexuals in the 70s. Wow. It was filmed over a decade, with some scenes possibly dating back to at least 1971, but it wasn't released until 1978 and only in Canada. It didn't play in New York until 1980, and it seems like many of the scenes are from other films. All the actors are dubbed over, plot points are made up to fill time, there's dramatizations, like it's a very complicated film. Gotcha. So this is what I think happened. Christine Jorgensen was the first transgendered woman to make headlines in 1952. And that was the story that Ed Wood's Glenn or Glenda uh, in 1953 would be among the exploitation films trying to capitalize on it. Got that. In 1970, the biopic The Christine Jorgensen Story was released, as well as Gore Vidal's Myra Breckenridge starring Raquel Welch, both films dealing with transgender topics, albeit in a very Hollywood way. Right. I think Doris saw both of those films, or at least understood that by upping the perverse sex value and getting real trans people to be in it, she could get the pervies, and those are the guys that go to like X-rated theaters to either whack off or get a beach in the bathroom, buy a transvestite prostitute for $10. I think that she could get them to want to see the real world of trans sex, which is a legit idea. What happened after that, I think is anyone's guess. So here's the trailer. This theater will present an extraordinary movie a motion picture that deals with the last sexual mystery. But it is much more than a motion picture. There are no actors or actresses in it. There are just real people. And what they do, and how they feel, and what happens to them in this all-real sexual adventure, you will remember all your life. Let Me Die a Woman, an all-real, all-true, overwhelming experience. Sounds good, right? Yeah. Let Me Die a Woman is instead interviews with a real doctor, confirmed, reading okay. cue cards for days, pointing to medical charts and explaining medical and hormonal procedures. There are additional interviews with trans men and women in various states of the process. Right. When they're describing sex, other actors and actresses, some trans but most not, reenact them. So that's trying to add the sexuality into the film, the, the sexual adventure into the film. Right. There's no penetration, but there are some horrifying titty-sucking scenes. 
In one or more, <laughs> a man gets in bed with what appears to be a woman, but her penis is soon revealed and they roll around in the bed together. The coloring in the film is so garish that their genitals are, they look like they're red and swollen. Is it a super saturated film? They look like they're on fire. Like, they look like their <laughs> genitals are made out of fire. <laughs> Um, and it's 70s sex, too. So everyone's not very well groomed and not really very attractive in the first place. Sure. In addition to this, there was lots of blood in the middle of the film. Actual stock footage of a sex change operation is like is is put in there. This probably came from Johns Hopkins since it was the only hospital in America that performed sexual reassignment surgery at the time. It also had a reenactment of a self-castration and a scene where a man kills himself because he can't deal with his feelings. But those scenes look like they were cut from maybe another Doris Wish movie that never got released. And then, in addition, the doctor strips a bunch of the trans men and women that are being interviewed to, like, point at their body parts and talk about them. In one scene, he pokes a trans woman's vag spread eagle and taking up every square inch of the screen. It's just a trans woman's vagina is the whole screen. This sounds like the most batshit fucking thing ever. It's so crazy. So this is what I think happened after what I think happened with Christine Jorgensen. Sure. I think she made the sexy trans film complete with interviews and simulated sex. She couldn't get the funding to get it into theaters due to the fact that Myra Breckenridge ended up being a critical and commercial flop. She made a few other films in the meantime. Then she got her hands on the stock surgery and thought, this is more shocking than the simulated sex in my other movie. Right. So she hacked up, no pun intended, the original. She put the surgery in there. Then she added some additional interviews with the now older original cast because there's so much time jumping in the movie. Like the doctor that plays is obviously five years goes by and she goes back to interview him again. Then I think she added some more schlock so the surgery wouldn't look so out of place. Then she added in a leftover scene of Vanessa Del Rio in Come With Me, My Love and a pre-mustache Harry Reams, you remember from Deep Throat, from the early 70s. The result is a mess that couldn't possibly have a target audience but all she needed was enough gimmicks to get people in the theater. And after that, who cares whether the movie was good or bad? Right. That's what seems to have happened to okay. it. Side note, it's a fairly enjoyable film. <laughs> and it's also surprisingly sympathetic to trans men and women. It certainly doesn't paint them as freaks or monsters, even though it does exploit them. Right. You know, the science is a little dodgy, but all in all, it's not without its merits. If you were to watch a Doris Wishman film, this would probably be the one just because it's so confusing and has so many elements of all of our other films. Okay. It's it's worth the watch. It sounds can, like it. Yeah. You can find it on the website. All right. Unfortunately, Let Me Die a Woman was pretty much the end of the line for Doris Wishman. Okay. By the early 80s, VHS was becoming a real thing. Mm-hmm. And it was closing down all of the grindhouse theaters. People were not inclined to go see Satan Was a Lady at the theater when you could watch it at home, right. you know? And this pretty much was was the end of it. Doris Wishman's movies never made any money. I think they only made enough money to get funding for the next one. Sure, from her sister. From Pearl. From Pearl, from yeah. From Pearl, yeah. yeah. Although she did make three more films. She loved the movie Halloween and thought it was just like the most amazing thing. And so she made yeah. a movie called A Night to Dismember in 1983. <gasps> it starred I've the, heard of that, actually. Yeah. It starred the porn star Samantha Fox, not the Australian singer of Naughty Girls Need Love Too. Baby, don't let me be so 
So she had gone into semi-retirement. They said that they found her. She was selling lingerie at a at a store in Florida, and huh. she, you know, was. I mean, in this point, she was in her seventies. You know, right. When the film festival brought her back, that there was new interest in her, and I think that she was kind of like, all right, let me use let me use this notoriety to try to get dildo heaven made. Dildo Heaven is a sex comedy. It's also video. It's on video. You know, right. it's video Grainy tapes. It video. looks terrible. Yeah. And it's all of her old 60s tricks. But now in the early 2000s, it just doesn't look like it worked. I didn't watch it. I'm not even sure if you can find it. Huh. There is an interview online somewhere, which I'll post on the website, which is allegedly from the editor of Dildo Heaven, who talks about it and says that a lot of the footage was lost. They tried to pull some footage and make it make sense from something else she had shot. And it's kind of similar to To Let Me Die a Woman. It's cobbled together. And then she also, she was working on another movie when she died that was called Each Time I Kill. It was released in 2007. She died in 2002. But she spent her later days in Florida close to her sister she was still trying to make movies and her most famous quote is when I die I'll be making films in hell oh wow great <laughs> yeah so that is the life and films of Doris Wishman that's that's fantastic I would have liked to have witnessed an interview with her just because there's so few female mainstream filmmakers or at all or independent filmmakers now at all being an exploitation filmmaker at the time especially ones where those, those films I mean they exploited women they beat women mm-hmm. she was like a, a pioneer of that and just being helming that at the time when it yeah. was a, a you know, a male-dominated, not only male-dominated, but kind of bring the girls in here and let's look at their tits. All right, yeah. they're perfect. Roll, you know, roll for camera. And but she did that too. I know. I mean, the, there's, there is one interview that exists of her, which I'll post on the website, uh, which is fascinating because you can't... Re- you can tell that she knows that her movies were bad, but also she loves that. You know, they were her babies sure. and they weren't perfect, but she was kind of like, this is what we are allowed to do in a movie concerning violence and sex or whatever. So let's write a script around that. It was a gimmick with a script written around it and she went out to shoot it. So she loved making movies. They weren't good and she had a style that she kind of stuck by, but she lived a, a really interesting life and, and probably met a lot of really interesting people. She rolls her eyes in the interview a lot and yeah. she kind of knows that the that the interviewer is making fun of her a little bit but is also kind of kind of like, well, whatever. This is what I did and yeah. you know, like it or not. She was a she was a really interesting, I think bitter, mean woman. <laughs> You think so? Oh, I just love her. She, yeah, she was New York cynical. You know, she was, I've got to get this shit done. And, you know, and it's complicated. She was an interesting lady. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our episode on Doris Wishman, mother of exploitation. We'll be back next week. All right. Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can find links to some of the movies we talked about today as well as Bad Movie Monday, our recommendation for the worst of the worst films every Monday night. Please, please, please fact check us. And if we left something out or got something wrong, let us know in the comment section of each week's topic. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies. 